0: Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's word.
1: We continue our study in this series that I've entitled, It is Finished, The Sure Foundation of Christianity. And today our subtitle is, A New Priesthood, A New Covenant. Remember what we're doing is we are looking at the sixth saying from the cross that Jesus made. Uh, In John chapter 19, verse 30, it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. Uh, In the... Greek, it's one word, To means it's completely complete. There's nothing else left to be done. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And the question that we're answering... Are seeking to answer is what is it that was finished? Well, certainly uh, Jesus' public ministry was finished. Uh, there would be some private time with his disciples um, in his post-resurrection appearances. Uh, Jesus' own personal suffering would ended uh, would would be ending uh, here at the cross because uh, the rejection that he had experienced on a personal basis. Uh, and of course, the beatings and just the pain of the crucifixion itself would all end as he had suffered for uh suffered the pouring out of the father's wrath for the sins of all of god's people but the uh, uh, the main answer to what was finished is the problem of sin for god's people. Uh, remember this that uh in terms of the Messiah uh, in the old economy, there was a separation of offices. Remember, the kings came from the tribe of Judah, and the priests came from the tribe of Levi. And there was an instance in Second Chronicles chapter twenty-six where a king named uh, Uzziah. Uh, sought to go into the uh, into the temple and to offer sacrifice, and when he did, uh, he broke out with leprosy. So there was a distinct uh, separation of the uh, of the kingly office and the priestly office under the Old uh, Testament economy. But under the New Economy, there's a combining of those offices, and we see Jesus fulfilling the Messianic offices in that he was, in in terms of being prophet and priest and king... Because as prophet, he spoke for God. As far as being the king, he is the one who rules for God. And being the priest, he is the only mediator between God and human beings. And what we're going to talk about today, uh, basically, is two things. We're going to talk about a new priesthood, and then we're going to talk about a new covenant. And uh, I think we'll have time to discuss all of those things. Our study will begin with a discussion of uh, a person who is... uh uh, unfortunately, not well known by, uh, by many Christians. If I were to ask you to name some of the most important people of the in the Bible, most of us would probably name people like, um, well, we'd certainly name Jesus. Uh, uh, we'd name God. Uh, we'd probably come up with Abraham and Isaac, uh, Jacob and Joseph. David, Moses, uh, there are a lot of uh, well-known names that would come up, but but I wonder how many of us, if somebody just asked us, you know, who are some important people? I wonder if on our list that we gave uh, that the name Melchizedek would appear in there. And but that's uh, one of the things that we want to discuss today in Genesis. chapter well before we talk about Genesis 14 let me just read you a verse from Hebrews chapter 7 verse 12 because we're going to be talking about a new priesthood and a new covenant and in Hebrews 7:12 it says for when there is a change in the priesthood there is necessarily a change in the law as well and so that's one of the things that we're going to be addressing now, in order to understand what we're going to be looking at in Hebrews chapter seven and eight it's necessary that we begin back in Genesis chapter fourteen. The time is probably somewhere around eighteen hundred b c uh, and in Genesis chapter fourteen, beginning at verse seventeen uh, let 's read and i'm i'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, after his, and the his there refers to Abram. His name has not been changed to Abraham at this point. After Abram's return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him. Now, remember what's what has happened here, this defeat of this king. Uh, Chedorlaomer Le- and his uh, associates. What, what has happened is uh, Lot has been uh, has been captured, and word got back to Abram that his nephew Lot had been captured, and so he got all of the folks who were uh, in his. Uh, in his employ, his servants, and and I'm sure hired servants as well, and also uh, some of the uh, other local tribal chieftains, and they went out and, uh, and waged combat, and they were able to rescue Lot. So that's a reference to that. So it says, When he was coming back, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek... King of Salem brought out... Salem is an old name for Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he, Melchizedek, blessed him... Abram and said blessed be Abram by God most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and Abram gave him a tenth of everything now the tenth of everything is a tenth of the spoils of war I'm always uh, rather amused when I hear people discussing tithing and they always say you know They go back to Abraham and they say, "Well, now, just remember when you when you go back in the Bible, even Abraham paid tithes. He paid tithes to uh, Melchizedek, and of course, that that is true that he did. But the tithe that he paid was ten percent of the spoils of war. It was he didn't keep paying ten percent over and over and over and over and over. One of these days we'll have to do a study on." Uh, on, uh, biblical giving under the new covenant. Because God owns everything, and God is just as concerned about the way we pay our bills as He is the way we give to, uh, charitable organizations, uh, to propagate the gospel. But that's a story for a different day, and, uh, so we'll, we'll discuss that later. So uh, anyway, what's, what's happened here is you've got this, uh, person, this Melchizedek, who just seems to appear out of nowhere, he's he's said to be two things. He was priest of God Most High, and he was also the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem. So here, isn't it interesting that here you've got a combined the combined offices of priest and king uh, in one person? This person, Melchizedek. Now, around. 1400 uh, BC the Mosaic uh, covenant came into being remember that's whenever uh, God gave the law and the pattern for the tabernacle and all the uh, uh, instructions for all of the sacrifices there at Mount Sinai is also the time that the Levitical priesthood came into existence that was around 400 years later after Abram and then about 400 years after that that, around 1000 BC, we read something very interesting that David wrote in Psalm 110, and this is uh, this is probably uh, of all the Psalms, this is the one that's quoted the most in the New Testament. Uh, <clears throat> Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. The Lord, and notice it says, The Lord says to my Lord. Notice the first Lord there is in all caps, and the second Lord uh, is uh, in caps and lowercase. What that means is that first word, Lord, is the word Yahweh, the covenant name of God. The old American Standard Version translate that translates that as Jehovah. And the second word, Lord, Lord is the word Adonai, which means master or owner or controller. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that's a picture of someone being uh, exalted, having ascended and being exalted. The Lord, verse two: The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Now, what is what is who who has a scepter? That's not uh, that's not the instrument of a priest, that's the instrument of a king. A king is the one who bears the scepter. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And he's talking about people who have been freed from the captivity of sin. And then verse 4, This is the verse that's quoted a number of times in the New Testament. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You, now the you here is whoever this person is who wields this mighty scepter who rules in the midst of His enemies. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. So when David wrote this prophetic psalm, Psalm 110... Uh, even though the Levitical priesthood was in uh, uh, was operational at that time, uh, remember David was a king himself. He was from the tribe of Judah. He could not go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice. Uh, that was the responsibility of someone, the the, the high priest or another priest from the, uh, from the tribe of Levi. But David is prophesying here in Psalm 110 that there is one who is coming who will combine these two offices. He will be a king, he will rule, but he will also be a priest and he will not only be a priest just for a little while, he will be a priest forever, but his priesthood will not be after The order of Levi, that is through genealogy, his priesthood will be after the order of Melchizedek. Say, good grief, we're only ten minutes into the Bible study and I feel like I'm lost already well you don't need to feel that way because the writer of Hebrews is going to help disentangle all of this for us in Hebrews chapter 7 and 8 so now let's let's review Melchizedek is a superior priest because his his name means king of righteousness uh he has he has a combined office. He's priest of God Most High. He is the King of Salem. He's King of Peace. Uh, he is, and and what we'll see is that he is going to be superior to the. Uh, Aaronic that is Aaron and the Levitical order Uh, Abram was Abram deferred to him by paying tithes to him and uh, notice in Hebrews chapter 7 verses 3 and 4 it says of him it says of this person Melchizedek and we know very little about him it says he's without father or mother Without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. See, this is very this is a, a very unusual statement for a person who is is of great importance because there's there's uh, there's no record of his genealogy there's no record of his birth there's no record of his death and what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to say the Lord Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek just as Melchizedek there's nothing written about his genealogy about where He came from, uh, how long He lived, His birth, His death, any of those kind of things. He is a picture or a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who is God from all eternity who came and took on our human nature and died for the sins of His people was resurrected and now He lives forever. He's at the right hand of the Father where He lives to constantly make intercession for us as our great high priest. And He will always be not only our King but our high priest. And that's one of the arguments that uh, that the writer of Hebrews is going to make, that there is a new priesthood. Incidentally, when the book of Hebrews was written, it was written around A.D. 67 to 68. Now, that's an important date. The reason it's important, because the, the, the crucifixion and resurrection took place around A.D. 30 to 32, somewhere in, in that time frame. So this is uh, this is between uh, this is a little over 30 years later. Now, even though the the uh, the veil of the temple was rent in two, and we've talked about this before, the, that veil was rent in two, and, uh, and it's a picture of through Christ Jesus we have access into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. We can come into our Father's presence through the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though that's true, somebody apparently repaired that veil in the temple. And so this Levitical worship just continued on practically as if nothing had happened. And at the time that Hebrews is written, that is still going on. They're still offering those sacrifices—the morning and the evening sacrifice. They're offering sacrifices at Passover and Yom Kippur, and all of the other special sacrifices that uh, that had. That had to be made under the old covenant, and what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to talk about the fact that now there is a new covenant. That now there is a new priesthood. Remember, uh, there were a num- the, the first believers in the Lord Jesus Christ were Jews. Uh, the uh, the original apostles were were Jews. The uh, uh, those uh, what two thousand who were saved on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came there in in Jerusalem, uh, those were all Jews. They were people who had gathered from all over the Roman Empire and had come there on Pentecost because it was required for Jewish males to be there. It's basically a Jewish church. Well, and remember, that's the only thing they've known. That's the only thing they've known for for centuries. That you know, he was a Jew. His his dad before him was a Jew. His grandfather and great grandfather were Jews. This is the only thing they've ever known. And there was oppression that was going on under the under the auspices of the Roman Empire. And there was such uh, such pressure on some of these Jewish believers that there was a tendency for them to go back to the old ways because by going back to the old ways uh, at least they weren't going to be persecuted so much so one of the reasons that the writer of the book of Hebrews writes the things that he does is, how can you go back there's a there's a new game now. It's a there's a new priesthood. There's a new covenant. How can you go back? That's the reason there are some five or six warnings in the book of Hebrews. You know, if if. Uh... If sin was punished uh, and and turning away under the old covenant was punished this way, how much greater is it a is it a sin to turn away from uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ? I, and I, I don't want to get into too much of that, but let's uh, let's just read some of this to to see what's going on now. Now to understand the logic and the argument that he's making uh, regarding Melchizedek, and I know you're having to pay close attention and you're wondering will we ever get through this but here here's here's the logical argument that he makes Uh, basically what he's going to be saying is this remember this reader that Abraham was a patriarch and the patriarch is always superior to his descendants and yet Melchizedek is considered to be superior to Abraham Because it was Abraham who deferred to Melchizedek. He's the one who paid tithes to him, not the other way around. Now the Levites are Abraham's descendants. Therefore... Melchizedek is superior to the Levites, and the priesthood of Jesus is according to the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, the priesthood of Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood. That's that's the uh, that's a synopsis of the argument that the author of Hebrews is going to make. Now we pick up the story, uh, pick up the argument in Hebrews chapter 7 uh, verse 11. Now if perfection or completion had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it the people received the law remember at sinai we got the 10 commandments you got the pattern for the tabernacle you got all the instructions about the priesthood how the priests were to function what the offerings were supposed to be like that's what he's talking about here he said if perfection had been attainable under all of that what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of aaron remember aaron was a levite he he was the brother of moses he was the first high priest and remember Again, go back to our what we were reading at the very start. You've got you've got this Melchizedek who just appears on the scene and then disappears, and the next thing we know, you've got Moses at Sinai receiving all this stuff about the law, and the Levitical priesthood is established, and then four hundred years later, David, under the uh, uh, inspiration of the Spirit of God, writes. Uh, psalm 110 and talks about this person who is to come who is a ruler but who is also a priest forever after the order of melchizedek okay What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. What he's going to show us is that the change from this Levitical priesthood to the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's after the order of Melchizedek, there 's a better covenant there 's a real atonement it wasn 't that just uh, just your 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 sins were covered for a year, and then let 's go through it again, but they were actually put away there 's complete and total forgiveness <clears throat> Verse thirteen for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar I say so he's talking about Jesus and he said now what tribe did Jesus come from he came from the tribe of Judah well you don't ever hear anything in the Old Testament about somebody from the tribe of Judah being in the office of uh, of the of the priest that was strictly for uh, for Levites for it's evident eb- Verse 14, that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent? In other words, you had to be a member of the family of Levi if you were, uh, and that didn't necessarily make you a uh, make you a candidate to be a priest. Uh, it made you a candidate to work in and around the temple, the tabernacle, and ultimately the temple. You had to also be a member of the uh, family of uh, of Aaron in order to qualify to be uh, a high priest. But it says that uh, this another priest arises. Incidentally, that word another priest arises, the word another is the word heteros. And it means another of a different kind. Uh, there are two two words in the Greek New Testament for another. One word is alos, a l l o s. Um, that word is used. Jesus used that word in the uh, uh, at the Last Supper with his uh, disciples when he said, "I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will give you another." Helper, another comforter. And there the word is alos, and it means another of the same kind that I am. So Jesus was saying when the Holy Spirit comes, uh, He's going to be like me. He's, he, like Jesus, that is. But this is a different word. It's the word heteros. It means another of a different kind. Uh, and this one is going to be after the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not because he uh, grew up in the right family, the family of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life, that is, on the basis of the resurrection. For it is witnessed of him, and then the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 110 verse 4, is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of his weakness and uselessness. And then notice in parenthesis, the author Comments on the term weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Now, does that mean that there was something wrong with the law? Was the law imperfect in some way? No. The law could reveal sin, but the law couldn't change you. The law could show you what was wrong with you, but the law couldn't change you. And that was the whole purpose of the law, was to reveal sin, It, uh, not to change the sinner. It takes the gospel, it takes the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to effect that kind of change. So on the one hand, a former commandment, the old covenant, is set aside because of his weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Well, how is it that we draw near to God? And that's through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, who will never die again. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And notice verse 20. It says... uh, well, let, let me pause here before before we read verse twenty. The, remember, the the Levitical priesthood was imperfect, but the law could diagnose sin. It served as a mirror. You look in the mirror, and the and it would the law would tell you what was wrong with you. It's like looking in the mirror in the morning when you get up. You can it can. The mirror reveals that your hair is disheveled. Uh, guys, it reveals that uh, that, that you've got uh, whiskers all over your face. It reveals uh, much to your chagrin that uh, no wonder your spouse didn't want anything to do with you last night because you got something green in your teeth and that must have been the turn off last night. The, the the law can the mirror can show you what's wrong with you, but can the mirror fix you? No, it takes a toothbrush to get the green stuff out. It takes a, a razor to get the whiskers off. It takes a comb or a brush to get your hair straightened out. It takes something else. the The law could diagnose the problem, and the law would condemn the guilty when sin became obvious, and it was only temporary because uh notice in in verses uh that we just read in verses fifteen through
0: nineteen
1: uh... <laughs> there's a, there's a uh, commentary on that in Romans chapter 8 verse 3 in the New Living Translation. Notice what it says about the provisional nature of the Old Testament. of the I'm sorry, the Old Covenant. It says, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies we sinners have, and in that Body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sin. In other words, the believer is set free from the law through the body of Christ, and we'll talk more about that here uh, in just a minute. All right, now back to verse twenty of Hebrews chapter seven. So he says, "Okay, he said uh, the this this." Priesthood is not a uh, is not a thing that that one inherits uh, because they came from the right family but it's it's one that was given by the power of an indestructible life it's on the basis of resurrection but even more than that verse 20 and it was not without an oath that is the uh and we'll see as we're talking about the oath of God here. For those who formerly became priests, that is the Levitical priests, were made such without an oath. They didn't have a swearing in to be a priest. They would have a service to commission you into the priesthood. But the Lord didn't swear any sort of oath to those individuals when that happened. And the contrast is here, verse 21. But this one, that is the Lord Jesus, the one after the order of Melchizedek, This one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. In other words, this is settled in heaven. You are a priest forever. Notice that... The priesthood of the Lord Jesus, this new priesthood, is not based on genealogy. It's not based on what family you came from. It's based on God's oath, God's promise. You are a priest forever. In the same way that Melchizedek was. This, and the result of that is verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What is a guarantor? That's someone who guarantees something. You know, uh, I remember when I was a kid growing up, the, and uh, it came when it was time for me to uh, get my buy my first car well i didn't have any sort of any sort of credit rating at all it was just zero and so my my dad wanted me to understand what it was like to to pay for an automobile and rather than just giving me one so he, he and i went to the bank and uh and you know at, by then i was old enough I guess it must have been my second car, not my first one. But anyway, my, when we went to the bank, I signed the note for the uh, for the for the loan for the for the car, an old used car. And but my dad, the bank required that my dad sign the note also. He became what was known as a cosigner. Now, what was the purpose of a cosigner? A cosigner guaranteed payment. If I didn't come through, then my dad would have been liable to pay that loan back well as we shall see, just in the case of Abraham when when God made the covenant with Abraham, remember that's a that's a, a unilateral that was a unilateral covenant it was an unconditional covenant. Remember when God made that covenant with Abraham or his name was Abram and he changed it to Abraham remember what Abraham was doing at the time he was sound asleep remember uh, Abraham had killed the animals God had told him to prepare the sacrifice because they were going to make a covenant and normally what would happen is you would take those those pieces of animal that were cut up and you would, uh, you would well, put them parallel to one another and then the two individuals who were making a covenant would walk between those pieces, between those dead animals and they would make their promises. I promise I'll do this and I promise I'll do that and if I don't do this you have the right to do so and so to me. And remember so that's what Abraham was expecting. But uh, uh, by sundown, God still hadn't shown up. And, uh, and Abraham was exhausted from trying to keep the, uh, uh, the carrying from getting down on the, uh, on the sacrifices. And he just lay down and went sound asleep. And after he went to sleep, God shows up. In the form of a, uh, a, a some sort of burning fire, and God passes between by himself God passes between those those dead animals and makes the covenant. That's the reason it's a unilateral covenant. What God promised to Abraham did not depend on Abraham at all. God guaranteed that He was going to do that for Abraham. And that's what this verse is talking about here, that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. And that better covenant, of course, is the new covenant. Again, the contrast continues. The former priests were many... number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office obviously remember Aaron died and was buried his son took his place eventually he died and his son took his place I mean just it just kept going on and on and on. for a while you might have a real good high priest and then later on you might have kind of one who who really didn't amount to much of anything, didn't care about people. You didn't know what you're gonna get. But he says, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Again, He ever lives to make intercession for us. Consequently, and here's where He draws the application, He is able... Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Notice again the the contrast that's being made here. There's a a contrast of the divine decree as opposed to tribal descent uh, that God's promise is inviolable. He, He will never ever break it. Jesus guarantees is a permanent guarantee. The old Levitical priests were subject to death, but Jesus is risen never to die again. And Jesus' covenant and His intercession for His people are unending. Um and he goes on in verse 26 of of, of uh, chapter 7 of Hebrews to talk about uh, the the divine nature of Christ Jesus. It says for it was indeed fitting that we we believers should have such a high priest and here he describes him holy, innocent, Unstained, that is unstained by sin, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests. What are those high priests? That refers to the Levitical priest. Those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. Remember, the old Levitical priests, they had to offer up sacrifices. Remember one of the things we looked at in one of the studies, we looked at Yom Kippur. Before the priest could offer a sacrifice for the people and for the nation, he had to order uh, offer a sacrifice for himself and for his own family. Jesus didn't have to do that. He didn't have any sins. He was holy and sinless and undefiled in every way. It says, He, Jesus, did this once for all when He offered up Himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness... As high priest. That's the old Levitical law. But the word of the oath, that is, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the oath, which came later than the law, in fact, 400 years later when David prophesied it, Appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Notice again, what you see here is the contrast between the the sinless priest, the Lord Jesus, and the sinful priests of the Levitical order. They, They may have been nice guys. They may have been real good at what they did. They may have been very sincere. But they were still sinners. Jesus was not a sinner. And they had to they had to repeat sacrifices year after year after year after year, but jesus sacrifice was once for all he is the son of God he is perfect in every way now in verse in chapter eight we we sort of uh, change change gears here and we turn from uh, from a new priesthood we see who the superior priest is that's the lord jesus christ but here we turn to a a new and superior covenant that is that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant to that you know you think about wow this thunder and lightning and all that kind of stuff took place up there when God gave the uh, law at Sinai and God warned told Moses said, you warn those people don't let any animals get close to this mountain don't let any of them come up here because they do they're going to die I mean it was a a spectacular thing apparently in fact the people were so intimidated by it they said look uh, we don't want God speaking directly to us you you, you just go up there to the top of the mountain and you let God tell you, and then you come back and you tell us. But of course, the First time that happened. By the time Moses got back, they were already breaking about three or four of those laws that uh, that God had uh, given up there at the top of the mountain. So now we're changing to the uh, to the new, the superior covenant. And incidentally, I want to point out here, just as there are two two words, two Greek words for the word another, allos and heteros, another of the same kind and another of a different kind, there are also two greek words for our one english word new one of those words is the word neos n-e-o-s neos we get um, the you've heard we've all heard of the neonatal surgery what is neonatal that's where the newborns go that's the latest one to be born and it has to do the word neos has to do with chronology but when the Bible talks about the new covenant it doesn't word use the word neos cuz the thing of chronology is not what is really is in sight it uses the word kinos, kainos k a i n o s and the word kainos the whereas the word neos has an emphasis on time and the latest thing chronology the word kainos uh, the emphasis there is on nature it's on quality this is a this is a new covenant in terms of its nature it has a new nature it has a new quality this this new covenant it's very different it's a as it were it's it's a prototype that's a that's a good way I think probably to express it uh, Jesus said to put new wine into new wine skins put neos wine the latest wine wine into kinos wineskins that is wine skins that 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 are different in nature they haven't been all shrunk out and dried up anymore so there's a there's a good instance in which both words are used in the uh, in the same sentence now What we're going to look at here is we're going to see Christ uh, in chapter 8 of Hebrews. We're going to see Christ as the superior administrator of the covenant. And we're going to see that it is administered from a superior location. And then we're going to see that this new covenant is established on superior Promises, and then there is a reference to the end of the old covenant. So let's just sort of read through this. Uh, We've got uh, well, not quite twenty minutes left, but let's uh, let's discuss as much as we can. Chapter eight. Now, the point in what we're saying is this: see, see, the writer of Hebrews. The 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 people to whom the writer of Hebrews was writing originally would not have the problems understanding this that you and I do. And the reason they do it is because he is writing to whom? The letters are right yeah, to the Hebrews. They would be familiar with the Old Testament. They would be familiar with names like Melchizedek. They would be very familiar with the Levitical priesthood, and and they would just they would be entranced, as it were, by all of these contrasts that the author has been making. So, he goes on to drive his point because he's going to say not only is there a new priesthood, but there is a new and better covenant as well. Now the point, chapter 8, the point in what we're saying is this. We, we believers, have such a high priest. What do you mean, such a high priest? One who is, back to verse 26 of chapter 7, one who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who is whose life is not uh, limited in any way? Who ever lives to make intercession for us? Who made sacrifice one time, and that's all it that was required? We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. Now, what's what's the importance of that? Well, if you think about it, in the in the tabernacle and he uses the uh, the illustration of the tabernacle a good bit in in this letter uh, while wow, there 's a lot of furniture in there, like the the table with the showbread and the lamp stand and you 've got the whole uh, the 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 Ark of the covenant and the mercy seat and the the uh altar of incense and outside you 've got uh, you 've got other items uh, the 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 great bronze altar where the sacrifices were made and the labor where the priest would wash himself there were there were all all this furniture was uh, was was made according to the specifications that God gave them. But you read through that you won't find a chair in there anywhere. There was no place to sit down. Now why? Because the Levitical priests were never finished. There was all always another offering to offer it was never finished and the point that's being made here is that we have a such a high priest one who is what seated at the right hand seated that means it's not because he was tired it means because his work was finished his work was accomplished he is seated at the right hand that's the, the right hand is the place of honor It's the place of Hour. Remember when a uh, when a when a patriarch would would bless his children and his grandchildren and he would lay his hands on them. Normally, it was what they would do is they would lay the right hand on the eldest son. And remember, well, one of the things that uh, got Joseph upset was when Jacob crossed his hands and laid his right hand on the younger of Joseph's children. And Joseph, whoa, Dad, don't do. That. That you 're getting it all wrong I know I know, but this this is the one who 's going to have the preeminence the The right hand was the place of prominence, it was the place of power, it was the place of honor uh, it was the place of exaltation. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. Jesus is still ministering. He ministers today where He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is our advocate. The uh, the Bible says. And notice now he's he's going to continue in his uh, in his. Uh, contrasts here and he's going to contrast the old tabernacle which remember there was a mobile worship center it was a tent and he's going to contrast that with what Christ is doing he says he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up not man This, so he's saying this Where Jesus is, He is ministering in heaven on our behalf right now. Or it, and notice now he's going to um, contrast the original in heaven with the symbolic, which was what the tabernacle was. Remember all that stuff uh, in the tabernacle? It was it was symbolic. For example, the uh, the the silver was always emblematic of redemption. The gold was emblematic of uh, deity. The uh, the bronze, the brass was uh, symbolic of uh, of judgment. Uh, when when you read about the things what certain items were made out of like the like the altar where the sacrifices were made that was not made out of gold that was made out of bronze that was a that's a symbolic of judgment and yet where the incense was offered that was made out of gold because that had to do with deity and uh, an offering made to deity it says for every high priest uh we're at verse 3 of chapter 8. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's what priests do. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also. Now, what priest? That's right, Jesus. This priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Why not? Well, first of all, because he's not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things they they just they they're doing what god told them to do but the things that they're doing don't put away sin but they are symbolic of, of something that's even greater. verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's, it is enacted on better promises. Remember, the, the key word in the book of Hebrews to understanding the word, the book of Hebrews is the word better. They're just comparisons and contrasts throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Joshua. His sacrifice is a better sacrifice than what the Levitical priests offered. His ministry is a better ministry than anything the Levites could ever do, that priesthood could ever do. And it says that this covenant is better. Why? Because... It is more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Remember, under the old covenant, basically it said this, Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. But under the new covenant, what it says is live and do this. Life comes first. There's and there is a there's <clears throat> okay. I, I'm supposed to do this and I'll live. But how do how do I do this? I can't do this. There's something inside me that makes me want to do just the opposite of that. That's why it takes a supernatural work of grace, on the part of God, to change us. That's one of the things that makes the new covenant better. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's keep reading. Verse 7, For if if that first covenant, that's the old covenant, the one who's given it Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, if that first covenant had been faultless, now the fact that the subjunctive is used here, what does that mean? If that first covenant had been faultless, well, it was not faultless. It had faults there would have been no occasion to look for a second but what was the problem with the first covenant what what was wrong what was wrong with the law of Moses nothing the law is holy and righteous and good the law is just as good as God himself is because it came from the lips of God what why it's so useless is because it doesn't do anything to change us. All it can do is show us what's wrong with us, but it can't make the changes in us. He says, he says, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And then he says this, for he finds fault, that is the he there is God, for he finds fault with them. Notice, the the problem is not with the law. The problem is with people. He finds fault with them when He says, Behold, and here there's a lengthy quotation from Jeremiah 31. Well, I say lengthy, About four verses from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Now, as I read this, I want you to notice something. Remember we were talking about the Abrahamic covenant being a unilateral covenant. God is the one who made all the promises. It all depends on God. Nothing depended on Abraham. If it did, it wouldn't have worked out anyway. It all depended on on God. Notice this time as we read through this where it says there's a new covenant. The, the problem is not with the with the old law. The problem is with us. It's with people because we are sinners. And notice what it says on at least six times in this quoted passage. It says, I will. Notice what God says He will do. I will. I will. I will. God speaking through Jeremiah. This is during the time of the Babylonian captivity. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put My laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Notice it's, this new covenant is established on better promises. The, the problem with the old covenant was not the law itself. The problem with the old covenant was the sinner. But here the change is. There's a promise of inward change. Uh, remember what uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as he, he addressed the, the believers there in Corinth? He says, "...you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts." And in that same uh, letter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And that word is new, not neos. He's not just the latest believer. He is a prototype. He is new in quality. He is new in nature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is. Has come. And notice he says at the end of that quotation from Jeremiah, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Notice there's a promise here of total, total forgiveness. Uh, later on in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it, the law, can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered? That, that's logical. That's logical since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins but in these sacrifices every year there is a reminder of sins in Micah chapter 7 verse 19 he says you Will again, speaking of God, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Remember that passage from the Psalms where it says, I will separate you from your sin as far as the east is from the west. There's a promise here total forgiveness and then to drive the the writer of hebrews here in chapter 8 to drive his point home notice what he writes in verse 13 this is a re- this is a reason that i mentioned so specifically the uh the date of this in verse 13 it says in speaking of a new covenant the kinos the uh, new covenant in quality a new covenant in nature he, God, makes the first one. What is that? The Mosaic Covenant. He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. See, he drives home his point. said, look, when, when you look at the temple... He's, he's writing in A.D. 67, 68. The temple is still standing. The Levite, Levitical priesthood is still functioning. They're still going through the motions. He says, "Okay, all of that stuff is going on." But I'm going to tell you what, because of this new covenant that in in Christ's blood, this old one is obsolete. And what is obsolete? That is this old covenant is growing old and it is ready to vanish away. And brothers and sisters, about two years later it did vanish away. Because in A.D. 70, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And there have been no more sacrifices, no more animal sacrifices. The records were destroyed. There's uh, no... Priest can really trace his uh, his uh, genealogy back to the Aaronic priesthood anymore. All of that has ended. Why? Because there is a new covenant. And there is a new priesthood. A priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. A priesthood in which the one who resides in that office is both king and priest. And he is a priest forever because of his endless life after the order of Melchizedek. Let's turn our attention for just a couple of moments to the conclusion and the personal application in addition to finishing the sin problem between God and His people, The death of Christ Jesus on the cross also finished the Old Covenant and all its rituals. The sacrificial death of Christ Jesus inaugurated the New Covenant and thereby made the Old Covenant obsolete. Look what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 and following. Before this faith came, that is this faith in Christ, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith now that faith has come we are no longer under the supervision of the law if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise the fear of persecution the fear of death Pressured a lot of first century professing believers to return to the old system, including all of those animal sacrifices. And this letter to the Hebrews warns against that strategy. Now, as 21st century believers, we're not tempted to go back to Judaism, because we didn't come out of Judaism, most of us. But we often. Are tempted to go back to our old ways of dealing with problems. We earn blessings. We earn acceptance from God. We, uh, if 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 I if I'll if I'll just fast for uh, seven days, then God will bless me. If I if I'll uh, if I'll give more money, uh, God will bless me. If I'll uh, if I'll read my Bible more, God will will bless me. Well, what's wrong with fasting and uh, giving money and uh, and reading the Bible? There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But we don't have to earn anything from God. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We have all the acceptance that we'll ever need, that we ever will have by being in Christ. We don't have to earn blessings. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. The true believer in Christ is first to turn to God for help. See, that's that's what these people under persecution in the first century should have done. Hebrews 4.14 and following says, "...Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is the perfect priest. He's fully human, fully divine. He represents God to us. He represents us to God. He's everything that we need. He is perfectly suitable, suited that is, for his mediatorial role. He is powerful, He is sinless, He is immortal, He is adequate for everything. So why, why do we, why should we turn to anyone or anything else? I love that old hymn by Augustus Toplady, Faith Reviving. From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the Father put to grief His spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn Me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on Thee? Complete atonement Thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid whate'er Thy people owed. Nor can His wrath on Me take place if sheltered in Thy righteousness and sprinkled with Thy blood. If Thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then my soul unto Thy rest. The merits of Thy great High Priest have bought Thy liberty Trust in His efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. Praise be to God for His great grace and mercy. Let's pray.
0: You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax-deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.